Hello and welcome to the first episode of Fintech Stories, the new Taylor Westing podcast which explores the latest legal and regulatory developments, trends and hot topics in the fintech sector from across the globe. With 1,100 attorneys spread across 29 offices around the world, we at Taylor Westing help the world's most innovative people and businesses to crack complex legal problems, enabling new ideas and aspirations to thrive. Within our fintech practice that is comprised of attorneys qualified in a number of different jurisdictions, we advise new entered fintech companies as well as established banks and financial service providers that are looking to leverage the use of innovative technologies in the financial services sector. I am Miroslav George. I am attorney in our banking and finance regulatory practice based in our Frankfurt office. And in today's episode, we will look at the key upcoming re- regulatory developments of importance for the fintech industry in 2023. I am pleased to be joined today by Dr. Verena Ritt-Doring, partner in our Frankfurt office and head of our banking and finance regulatory practice at Tilwest in Germany. Hello, Verena, and welcome. Hello. I'm glad to be joining you today. As well as Claire Reynolds, senior counsel in our London office, who specializes in the intersection between finance and technology with ex- extensive experience of working with fintechs and technology companies in the financial services sector. Hi, Claire, and welcome. Hi, Miroslav. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. So to start with, in September 2020, the EU Commission has published an ambitious action plan on digital finance that aims to make the EU financial regulation more digital friendly and more suitable for the digital reality that financial institutions are operating in. The Commission's action plan consists basically of two packages of legislative proposals, digital finance strategy and retail payment strategy. Now, one of the key parts of the Commission's retail payment strategy is the reform of the main building block of the payment services regulation in the EU, the second payment services directive, PSD2. In May last year, the Commission published targeted consultation aiming to gather feedback from the industry on the revision of the PSD2 framework. Verena, could you maybe provide us with some information on what is the Commission's plan when it comes to revision of PSD2? Yes, sure. Well, from the consultation, we see that the Commission was really looking to get the feedback from the industry, which is always good. They asked the market if the European payment system so far is integrated and efficient enough and whether it provides for good basis for innovation and application of new technology in the payment sector. And following the consultation, EBA published a comprehensive opinion on the revision of PSD2. And this opinion is now discussed at indication of what is to come in PSD3. So we do not have a proposal of PSD3 yet. It's supposed to be published in summer this year, so maybe even in the second quarter this year, um, but probably some, sometime in summer. So, And what we know so far from the consultation and the EBA opinion is that the definition of payment services will likely to be redefined, so that some services may merge into one, um, and, and it all will become a little bit clearer throughout Europe. We will likely see a merger of the PSD and the EMD, so the, the e-money directive, which also makes perfect sense. We have this already in Germany, and it, it really does make perfect sense. 
um, then it is discussed that we need same initial capital requirements for all payment services, um, except for payment initiation services and account information services, um, who have very low initial capital requirements anyway. Some gaps in the area of the strong customer authentication um, for e-commerce card payments will very likely be closed. And quite importantly, APIs shall be standardized within the market. And Verena, are there any plans for change in part of PSD2 that is concerning the widely used exclusions that many unregulated entities are relying on? Yes, that's a great question, Miroslav. Um, there are currently different interpretations of the exemptions within the European market. Um, EBA has given guidance recently on the limited network exemption, but the commercial agent, is, uh, agent exclusion, which is also used widely, is not being interpreted in a harmonized way in all member states. And EBA has pointed out that the Commission shall provide better guidance for the industry on the interpretation um, of the existing exclusions under the PSD2 And it is expected that we will see more clarity on this in PSD3. And based on everything that we know so far from the consultation and EBA opinion, uh, what do you think? Do we expect to see another directive this time or rather a regulation? Probably another directive, um, but maybe flanked by regulation for better harmonization. Um, the recent trend in the EU goes rather towards regulation. So we will see. Okay. Thank you, Irene. Uh, now, as part of the digital finance strategy, the commission also considers to introduce new regulatory framework on open finance. While we all know and are quite familiar with the concept of open banking that was introduced by PSD2, um, the concept of open finance might not be that clear for everyone. So, Irene, could you maybe provide us with some clarity around the concept of open finance? Yes, of course. So um, the open finance concept refers to the sharing, access and reuse of personal and non-personal data for the purposes of providing a wide range of financial services. With PSD2, Um, provided access to payment accounts held by a bank through payment initiation service and account information service. Um, access to accounts will um, now be broadened through PSD3. In the open finance world, um, customers shall be able to get direct access to a number of different financial products um, coming from different providers so that they can choose the most suitable solution for them. For them, So different financial products, that means products, financial products, loans, mortgages, but also insurance products. Um, different providers, that means competitors in this regard. Um, and for the most suitable solution, the customer will now look um, for terms of price, features, um, and so on. The idea is that customers will be able to compare conditions and prices for financial products and services through third-party intermediaries and respective data sharing agreements. So, and this 
third party intermediaries will very likely be some operators of online platforms that have a strong a API infrastructure. Very interesting. And Verena, what is the commission's plan uh, in this area? How will open finance be regulated exactly in the EU? So from the report of the expert group that provide advice and expertise um, in re relation to the preparation of legislative proposals and policy initiatives in the field of data sharing in the financial sector from October last year, um, we understand that the core focus of the new framework will be on detailed requirements on data sharing, the requirements that provide for security of customer data and prevention for fraud. Um, the legal framework would also need to include expectations of the scope of the data to be shared and the interfaces to be used by the firms to access data um, as well to provide a legal basis for the development and introduction of a single EU API standard. Um, the single EU API standard will be a game changer in the EU. So to sum it up, the idea of open finance um, aims to achieve um, is to provide customers in the EU uh, with an easy and smooth access to various financial products and services from various providers all in one place, um, just a few clicks away available on everyone's mobile device or computer. The last part of, of your of your sentence, having all services and products just a few clicks away in one place reminds me of how the infrastructure underpinning the provision of financial services nowadays has become completely digitized. And this is something that the regulators all around the world are starting to pay ever closer attention to, which also brings me to our next topic, uh, which is the question of digital operational resilience uh, in the financial services sector. Moving to you, Claire, as part of the digital finance strategy, the commission has also proposed a new regulation commonly known as DORA, Digital Operational Resilience Act, that aims to harmonize existing requirements on digital operational resilience that apply the regulated entities in the EU. Could you please provide us with a brief overview of what DORA means for the financial services industry and what will be some key regulatory requirements that businesses operating in the EU shall be aware of? Thanks, Mirsav. So following various high-profile IT incidents and cyber attacks, DORA introduces extensive new requirements for EU firms to essentially manage their ICT risks, and this is all with a view to becoming more resilient to disruption. The concept of digital operational resilience doesn't just refer to having suitable IT systems in place, Rather, it's about a whole means of operating to ensure that firms can recover, respond and adapt, adapt in the event of a cyber attack or of disruption. It broadly means taking a holistic view of IT risks across the business, its systems and also its people. All of this might be particularly challenging for firms with various legacy IT systems. In terms of the actual requirements, there are so many, but I'll focus on just a few things that firms might find particularly challenging. Inscope firms will need robust risk management arrangements in place and to comply with various new requirements. 
For example, a new incident management regime will include notifying regulators of major ICT-related incidents and voluntary notification of significant cyber threats, as well as monitoring incidents and anomaly activities. There's also requirements to test IT systems, including advanced threat-led penetration testing for certain significant firms, as well as management of third-party risk in IT supply chains. At the heart of DORA is also the idea of governance and senior management responsibility. So it's important that firms get this right and document everything under the various policies and strategies that DORA mandates. January 2025 might sound like a long time away now, but given the extent of changes that need to be embedded in practice, it's important to start thinking about compliance efforts sooner rather than later. Remember that operational resilience is really a journey rather than an end state, and change won't happen overnight. Taking measures sooner also means that firms will benefit from better protection from cyber attacks in the meantime. Claire, uh, DORA does not bring important novelties for regulated entities in the EU only, but also for third-party service providers that provide services to regulated entities. For instance, um, as a result of outsourcing arrangements that regulated entities frequently enter into. What are some key novelties under DORA that are of particular importance for third-party service providers? Yeah, that's totally right. Thanks, Merslav. Um, Firstly, IT suppliers will need to enable their EU financial services customers to comply with DORA. So that's going to mean embracing some of the requirements, including providing additional insurance assurance on aspects like security, providing greater oversight of subcontracting, and in some cases, enabling penetration testing of IT systems. However, where DORA is arguably even more revolutionary is that it establishes a whole new regime for European regulators to directly oversee certain critical third-party IT providers that are designated under DORA. This could mean, for example, that some of the large cloud providers are subject to direct oversight by European financial services regulators for the first time. Bearing in mind these new requirements that DORA will bring for third-party service providers, uh, I would like to ask you, will certain uh, degree of redrafting of existing outsourcing agreement be necessary so that regulated entities as well as third-party service providers can ensure compliance with the new regime? It certainly will. Uh, So many of the contractual requirements under DORA are similar to those under existing guidelines from the EBA, IOPA and ESMA, which I'm I'm sure many firms will have been very busy implementing over recent years. However, there are some differences under DORA that means that contracts will still need to be renewed or updated. So firms might want to start thinking about how DORA compliance fits with their schedule for contract renewals of IT systems and services in the coming years. As mentioned before, the scope of application of DORA is extremely broad and captures not only traditional financial institutions, but other third-party service providers and newly regulated providers such as crypto asset service providers under Mika. So, Miroslav, I think that brings us very nicely onto our next topic, um, which is shedding some key developments in the area of crypto assets that we can expect in 2023. 
Thank you, Claire. Yes, this is indeed one of the cornerstones of the Commission's digital finance strategy. Namely, the EU Commission has proposed a regulation on markets and crypto assets that shall create a harmonized regulatory framework on crypto assets in the EU. Because currently, we do not have harmonized rules that apply to crypto asset related activities, and there are quite big divergences in approaches that supervisory authorities across the EU uh, take when it comes to this topic. Mika will introduce regulatory requirements on issuers as well as uh, providers of certain crypto asset related services, such as crypto exchanges, wallet providers, as well as entities that provide investment advisory or portfolio management services related to crypto assets. Issuers will basically be required uh, to publish a white paper and information document before offering crypto assets to the public, which will contain uh, certain uh, information about the offering. So information about the issuer, description of the offer, assets, underlying technology, and so on and so on. So in a quite similar way, like the, the information that need to be published under the prospectus regulation. When it comes to crypto asset service providers on the other side, they will need to obtain authorization before providing services to your customers from uh, their local national competent authorities. However, it is important to mention that once crypto asset service providers obtain authorization in one EU member state, they will be able to benefit from the so-called EU passport, so to provide services in other EU member states as well based on a single license. When it comes to scope of application of the new regime, in particular, uh, when it comes to crypto assets to which new rules will apply, uh, Mika will apply to three different categories of crypto assets. Uh, first, two types of the so-called stable coins, uh, asset reference tokens and e-money tokens, as well as one broad category of other crypto asset that is basically intended to capture various types of crypto assets, such as virtual currencies, utility tokens, as well as hybrid versions thereof. On the other hand, it is important to mention that Mika will not apply to crypto assets that qualify as regulated instruments under existing regulations, for instance, financial instruments under MIFID II. And uh, it will also not apply to uh, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, provided that they are, in their essence, uh, non-fungible assets. So what's the timeline of when Mika is expected to come into, a, into force and to apply? Well, after a number of postponements, uh, the final voting on Mika in the European Parliament is scheduled for April, April this year. Uh, once adopted, Mika will start to apply uh, following the expiration of the 18-month residual period. Uh, so from today's point of view, it is unlikely that Mika will start to apply uh, before uh, the beginning of 2025. You said that Mika will not apply to regulated instruments under existing, re existing regulations. What about tokens that qualify as transferable securities or as security tokens? How is trading in these types of crypto assets likely to be regulated from now on? Great question, Claire. As a matter of fact, there are some important novelties in this area as well. So with the aim of enabling trading of securities that are issued via DLT, the Commission has proposed the introduction of the new regime, new uh, regulatory sandbox, so to say, called DLT pilot regime. 
because existing rules on securities trading, they uh, indeed contain some requirements that are inherently incompatible uh, with uh, the trading in DLT-based securities. For instance, book entry requirements under CSDR or certain settlement requirements under the same regulation. Uh, the Commission has proposed this new regulation that shall provide for targeted exemptions from existing requirements with the aim of enabling trading in DLT-based uh, securities. As part of this framework, regulated investment firms and central securities depositories will be able to apply for these targeted exemptions from uh, various requirements under existing regulations, such as book entry requirements under CSDR, which should enable admission to trading of securities that are not registered with a CSD in traditional form, but instead automatically recorded on the DLT-based ledger. Further exemption would also be uh, exemption from the requirement and mandatory cash settlement, which is intended to use to facilitate use of settlement coins or e-money tokens for security settlement purposes. That's really interesting, Miroslav. Thanks very much. And when will this new framework start to apply? Will it be operational together with Mika or sometime before? Well, this pilot regime is actually going live in a couple of days on 23rd of March uh, this year and will run initially for a period of six years. Uh, By March 2026, ESMA is mandated to prepare a report on functioning of the regime, based on which the EU Commission shall make recommendations to the Parliament and the Council on whether the regime shall be extended for a period of up to three years, made permanent or eventually extended to other types of financial instruments. Now I would like to move to our next topic um, that was really occupying the headlines in the industry in recent years, which is buy now, pay later. Uh, Boosted by the changing consumer habits during the pandemic, the e-commerce sector has recently experienced exponential growth and uh, we saw it with it. uh, BNPL has become one of the fastest growing areas. Uh, in the fintech industry. It is worth mentioning that at the moment, we don't have any harmonized framework in the EU that regulates activities of BNPL providers. And approach of regulators across the EU really varies when it comes to regulation of BNPL products. However, the Commission has recently put some plans in motion that shall change the regulatory landscape when it comes to operation of BNPL providers in the EU. Verena, could you maybe shed some light for us on the Commission's agenda in this area? Yes, sure. So as you just said, we don't have a harmonized framework in the EU currently, and BNPL providers are operating license-free in some countries. Um, In other countries like Germany, it's credit business. Um, The European Commission is really looking to bring now pay later providers under the scope of applicable financial regulations and the first step is a proposal of a revised consumer credit directive. So this new proposal provides clearer requirement on customer information, pre-contractual information and certain terms within the credit agreement itself. Also transparency of all costs um, involved um, in BNPL is a crucial point here. And what will be the main practical impact on BNPL providers operating in the EU once the new regime becomes operational? Um, 
while of course this will also take some time and given that the credit uh, the consumer credit directive is a directive um, there may still be some small uh, divergences in national laws um, that will regulate this topic but in a nutshell BNPL providers will be required to provide their customers with clear information about the risks, the costs, and the conditions of their BNPL products, especially in digital and smart device-friendly formats. And um, the providers will also be required to assess the consumer's creditworthiness, so meaning the ability to repay the loan, by taking into account the customer's interests and based on necessary and pro proportionate information on the consumer's income and expenses and other financial and economic circumstances. There will also likely be a harmonized approach of the license requirements for BNPL providers. However, it remains to be seen how individual member states will address this. It is interesting how national regulatory frameworks vary from one another when it comes to this topic. You previously mentioned how strict German regulatory framework is by qualifying BNPL service service as a credit business, whereas in some other EU member states, we don't have any rules uh, whatsoever that apply to BNPL providers at the moment. However, it is worth mentioning that some EU member states where BNPL was not regulated traditionally under existing rules have decided to take unilateral steps at national level to change this. Uh, for instance, in Ireland in May last year, a new act was commenced, the Consumer Protection Act 2022, that basically brought BNPL providers under the scope of Irish financial regulation. Having said that, and given that the Irish consumer credit regulations were, uh, at least up until recently, uh, fairly similar to consumer credit uh, regime in the UK, the question to you, Claire, is the EU alone in this race of regulating BMPL providers, or are there any plans being set in motion in the UK that shall change the existing consumer credit regulatory framework as well? Yeah, thanks, Miroslav. So buy now, pay later has been high on the policy agenda in the UK as well. In fact, the government very recently published its long-awaited plans that will overhaul how buy now, pay later is regulated in the UK. In particular, buy now, pay later providers themselves will actually be brought inside the FCA's regulatory perimeter, and they will be subject to various consumer protection requirements as part of that. Under the proposals as we've seen them, merchants that introduce customers to buy now, pay later providers would normally be out of scope and certain firms of short-term interest-free credit continue to also be carved out. So that consultation is actually open until the 11th of April for anyone who's particularly interested in the UK approach on buy now, pay later. Thank you very much, Claire. Um, End of last year, the wider public was quite shocked, I would say, when we all saw the capabilities of ChatGBT, artificial intelligence-based chatbot that quickly put, or I would rather say put back, the topic of AI on the top of agenda of all players in the fintech, as well as broader tech world, I would say. We saw 
couple of weeks ago as well that a number of Wall Street uh, banks have prohibited their staff uh, to use ChatGPT and rely on its results when conducted business activities within these firms. Verena, if we talk about the use of AI in the financial sector, we all can identify some benefits and use cases, of course, that financial institutions could embrace in the near term. But have supervisory authorities been dealing with this topic so far? And have they provided any specific guidance for the industry on this topic? Yes, the German regulator BaFin has already published some guidance on AI and machine learning in 2021. BaFin emphasizes over and over again that it is technology neutral. This means there's no bias against AI tools in their supervision. And their supervisory approach also in relation to AI is still risk-based. So regarding machine learning, AI, BaFin still these the explainability of what happens inside the black box of AI systems as uh, quite important. Um, so there are, of course, some particular requirements that one needs to have in mind when providing specific regulated services. Miroslav, I know you have been dealing with this topic in the wealth management and investment advisory space recently. Could you tell us what what are some key regulatory requirements that firms should have in mind when using AI-based systems for the provision of these services? Yes, of course. Uh, so first, when providing investment advisory and portfolio management services, firms are required to comply with MIFID II suitability requirements, which basically involves the process of assessment of their clients' individual circumstances that needs to be performed before a certain product or investment strategy is recommended to the client. For this purpose, uh, firms basically need to collect information about the individual circumstances of their client, like risk profile, financial situation, and so on and so on, and assess them accordingly. Uh, these rules apply regardless of the technology that the firm is using uh, for the purposes of provision of the service. And uh, back in 2018, ESMA has emphasized that where firms use automated systems for the provision of investment advisor or portfolio management service, for instance, robo-advisory solution, uh, they bear ultimate responsibility for the outcome, same as if an employee would provide a service to the client. ESMA also provided some high-level guidance for the firms by emphasizing that firms are required to provide the clients with clear explanation emphasizing that uh, the services provided through an automated systems, as well as to explain the exact degree of the human involvement. ESMA also requires firms to implement certain technical features that would basically improve customers' experience uh, in, the, in, the, in this case. Uh, so, for instance, to implement certain, uh, certain um, important disclaimers in pop-up boxes, as well as to use interactive text boxes such as tooltips or FAQ sections on their website for uh, important information. In addition to these rules, there are some upcoming regulatory developments that the industry shall have on the radar as well. Um, and having said that, Claire, could you maybe shed some light on recent developments in the EU and the UK for us? 
Yeah, so at the EU level, there's a uniform horizontal legal framework for AI in the EU is on its way with the EU AI Act currently going through the legislative process. So this will establish a horizontal regime for AI that will apply, apply across all sectors, not just in financial services, and it follows the Commission's proposal in 2021. It aims to encourage the safe and lawful AI uses that respect fundamental rights. For example, it will classify certain AI practices, including prohibiting certain use cases and making other high-risk AI subject to various requirements. For example, if we think in the financial services context, use cases like using AI to assess creditworthiness could potentially be classified as high-risk AI and subject to additional requirements. For example, things like designing the AI with transparency in mind and testing the system to identify risks and mitigate these, all with a view of reducing potential harm. In the UK, again, there's a bit of difference between the approach that the UK and the EU has taken. So the government has also put forward proposals on AI regulation in the UK, although so far appears to be taking a slightly less centralised approach than that in the EU. Recent proposals, for example, are intended to encourage responsible use of AI, whilst also supposedly re reducing compliance burdens on businesses. In financial services specifically, the FTA is also looking at AI, having recently conduct, conducted a consultation. So there's certainly a lot happening and it will be interesting to see where the FTA comes out on that in recent months. Very interesting, Claire. And when it comes to a future EU regulatory framework on AI, what is the expected timeline? Is it expectable that the new regime become operational anytime soon? So the last thing I heard was that the European Parliament was expected to vote on the EU AI Act at the end of March, with a view to it then entering into law in early 2024. They have, for example, recently finalised some of the key definitions, where there was a huge amount of debate in particular. However, delays could push back the timeline, and I expect that all the debates generated by chat GPT probably haven't sped things up. Yeah, definitely not. Thank you, Claire. I mean, it is really interesting to see how the technology is developing and how the financial services sector is changing as a result of this. From what we heard today, it is fair to conclude that 2023 will be one of the busiest years, I would say, so far when it comes to regulatory developments in the fintech space. There is really a lot going on right now in Brussels, so fintech players operating in the EU with, will really have a lot to deal with in the coming period, I would say. This brings us to the end of our today's episode. I would like to thank you both for joining me today. It was a great discussion and it was great speaking to you both about these interesting topics. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with our forthcoming episodes that will continue to explore the latest legal and regulatory developments, trends, and hot topics in the fintech sector from across the globe. <laughs>